Hey, can I ask you guys a question? Anybody here a fan of Chick-fil-A? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I like Chick-fil-A too much. In fact, I went into Chick-fil-A uh, the other day, uh, probably about two weeks ago, and um, I walked in with some of the guys from our staff, and the lady behind the counter was like, um, hey, Bob, how you doing? It'll be number two, right? And I was like, that's just messed up. And then as I was sitting, other people that worked there were coming by. They're like, hey, Bob, can we get you anything? And you want to refill on your soda or lemonade? And I'm like, too many people know me here. This is, this is just messed up. And, um, and so, but the, I've been trying to cut back a little on Chick-fil-A and eat uh, a little healthier. And so the other day, um, I was driving it. This is probably this past week I was driving into the office. And um, I was trying to get in there a little earlier than, than normal. So I'm driving in, and then, but I thought, so I hadn't eaten breakfast, and I thought, man, you know what I'd really love right now are those little chicken minis. You ever have those chicken minis? Oh, they're so good. They're, they're, they're like make you slap your mama. They're that good. I mean, they're, they're good. Um, so anyway, I'm like, man, these are so good. And I thought, man, I'd, lo- I'd love to have some chicken minis. And I'm like, wow, but I'm not really eating stuff that's delicious. Um, I'm eating other things and, uh, that aren't so delicious. And then so, but I said, you know what, what, here's what I'm going to do. And I just prayed and I said, Lord, if you want me to go to Chick-fil-A, when I drive by, let there be a spot open in the, like a front spot right there in the front. And then I'll know that it's your will for me to go to Chick-fil-A. And here's the weird part. As I drove by, I drove by the seventh time I drove by a spot in the front opened up. It was like the weirdest thing that happened. Um, but <laughs> You know, here's the thing is that all of us have done this, right? All of us have like pushed the envelope a little bit, maybe a little, a little too much. Like we all have, we just do it in different areas. Uh, maybe for you, you know, it's not Chick-fil-A. Maybe for you, it's, um, you know, you want to save money and you're like, man, I'm always spending money. I'm going to save money this time. I'm going to, you know, fatten up my savings account a little bit. So I'm going to stop spending money. So that's going to be your thing. And then some, like the next day someone calls you and says, hey, you want to come to the mall? And you're like, oh, I don't want to go to the mall. Or just something. And then, but then you, you sit like, wow, I really should really would like to go to the mall, but I want to save money. But you know what? But you know, the truth is that the mall's free. Like, it, they don't charge a mission for you to walk around in the mall, all right? So you can just walk for free all along and just enjoy their air conditioning. And you can just maybe go around the food court and just get the samples. I'm convinced if you go around there four or five times, you'll get full. And... Uh, so you think you can do that, but then what happens is, is that so you're driving around the mall, you're doing fine, you haven't spent anything, and then your friend wants to go into a store, and you go into a store, and then you know he or she sees something that they like, and you see something that you like, and you say, you know, I could I could try this shirt on, I could try this outfit on, and you know the thing is, they let you try the stuff on for free, like they don't charge you to try the clothes on, and then you can always try it on, and when you look real spiffy. You can just take a picture of yourself in the mirror, like, you know, hey, what's up? You know, do something like that and change your profile picture on Facebook. Like, you know, like, whoa, this guy re- wears really nice clothes. Did you notice, though, that the, sle- the, uh, the tag is still hanging on the sleeve? But don't worry about that. Um, so you got that. But then, you know, the weird part is, is that you try the clothes on, and then you're like, you know, it's on sale. 25% off? I'm trying to save money. The store is trying to save me money. I mean, this is like... This is God bringing us together. This is really what this is. So then you buy the thing and then you get home and you have buyer's remorse and you think, how did I just, how did I do this? And you just kind of, it's like you don't just say, hey, I'm going to just wake up and spend all this money. You just, you just inch your way there. You just kind of push the envelope a little bit. 
And listen, and that's because, and it's just an amazing thing, that all of us are capable of talking ourselves into just about anything um, it, with, if the circumstances are right. And here's the deal. That's the story of the seventh commandment. Now, this commandment is, is a serious one, and it's, I, I, it's, a, it's an important one because nothing destroys families faster than breaking this one. But the thing about the, the, the seventh commandment is that it gets broken the same way that we justify putting on clothes or walking into Chick-fil-A or, or whatever. You, you don't just decide to do it. You just kind of inch your way there, push the envelope, and next thing you know, you've done the thing you, that you said originally that you didn't want to do. So what's the seventh commandment? Five words are in the notes that we gave you. I hope that you got the notes handy. I hope you got your pen handy. But it's five words. You shall not commit adultery. That's it. And the command is given to us in the negative, not like the positive one, like, like the Sabbath. You know, remember the Sabbath. But instead, it's given to us in the negative. Don't commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery so that we clearly understand God's intention. But the hope was that people would do the positive so they never experienced the negative. You see, so that couples, so that, so that they didn't ever commit adultery, couples would love each other and understand each other and meet each other's needs and do all of that so that they never had to experience the other thing and adultery would never become an issue. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 5, it says it this way. It says, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always and may you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. Why is this important? In 1953, a study was done, and it said that 50% of men were unfaithful to their wives. 26% of women were unfaithful to their husbands. This study was just done, is constantly done, but it was done again. And today, the story is, the, the, the stats are, 60% of men are unfaithful to their wives. 41% of women now are unfaithful to their husbands. And so it's, it's, a, it's a serious, serious thing. And here's what makes it even more serious. The thing that makes it even more serious is that everyone believes that it can't happen to them. Because everyone looks on at adultery and they say, well, I mean, that's, that, happens, that could never happen to me. I mean, it could never happen to us. I mean, that happens, you know, that happens to other people. But it, it couldn't possibly happen to us. But here's the thing is that nobody actually sets out to cheat on their spouse. What happens is, is that you just kind of inch your way there a little bit at a time just by kind of pushing the envelope a little bit, and then we start making decisions that leave us vulnerable to walking into something that can destroy our marriage. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk very practical for a moment. And that's why if you've got your notes, I want you to make sure you have them and you're ready to write, because what I want to talk about is practically three pitfalls that cause people to fall into adultery. Here's the first one. The first one is this, is that there are unfulfilled needs. There are unfulfilled needs. Men have needs. Women have needs of all, of all types. And, um, and many times it's when those needs go unmet that we become open or more prone to have an affair. There, there's, there's just unfulfilled needs. And sometimes those are in the form of sexual needs. Sometimes they're in the form of something else. And so a guy feels frustrated because his wife always has a headache. Um, it reminds me of the story of the guy uh, who came, his wife came home. And when she, right when she got home, he handed her two aspirin. And she said, what's this for? And he said, it's for your headache. She says, I don't have a headache. And he says, gotcha. So, um, you know, by the way, if you have a headache that lasts for more than six months, you need to go to the hospital. 
and get some kind of scan, you know, because something's wrong. Um, but men and women have needs, and it's important for us to know what those are. Uh, a guy by the name of Willard Harley wrote a very popular book called His Needs, Her Needs uh, that came out, you know, several years ago. And uh, when I read it, uh, I thought it was fascinating. I read it years and years ago. But um, what he talks about in the book is he outlines the five needs that men have, five needs that women have. And let me give them to you. Uh, this may save you having to actually read the book. But here's, here's the five. These are the five top needs, according to his research, the five needs that women have. Uh, it's conversation, honesty, openness, financial support, family commitment. Those are the five things that, that he says uh, women are looking for. Here are the five things that men are looking for. Number one, sex. That's a real shocker. Um, number two, companionship. Number three, an attractive spouse. Number four uh, is domestic support. Number five is admiration. Now, here's the thing that I find so fascinating is that um, the thing that I find most interesting isn't even necessarily the, the needs themselves, but the fact that none of them are the same. Five different needs for men, five completely different needs for women, and then we wonder why we don't understand each other. And, and it's like, well, and the thing is, is that, and some of the issue is, is that we're trying to love our spouse the way we ourselves want to be loved. That's why, you know, a, a, a wife says, honey, we need to talk. And he says, let's get it on. And he's like, no, 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 I want, I want to talk. And he says, let's talk about getting it on. And then it's like, well, this isn't the conversation I was really looking for. And then a fight erupts. And you say, well, how does that work? And, and it's the whole thing is the key is to understand each other, understand each other's needs, and then seek to meet those needs. Not the needs that we have, but the needs that the other has. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter writes these words. He says, in the same way, husbands, give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. In another translation, it says, dwell with your wife in accordance to understanding. And that is that if we're going to be together and stay together, we have to be committed to understanding each other. If not, there's going to be unfulfilled needs. Number two, <coughs> pardon me, second pitfall is there's unresolved conflict. There's unresolved conflict. Whenever there's unresolved conflict in a marriage... One of the things that can happen that we need to be careful of is that we'll turn and talk, start talking to someone else of the opposite sex um, of the, the, prob, the marital problems that, we're ha- ha- that are happening. You know what the problem is with that? Is that the, uh, that other person that's not our spouse starts to look very, very attractive and our spouse starts looking less and less attractive because of the conflict that's taking place. Now, Jesus said this, and you'll see it up on the screen in a second. It says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either love the one and hate the other, or he'll despise the one and have affection uh, for the other. And he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And the idea is this. Jesus spoke those words in context of money, that you can't serve both God and money. I want to give, that, give it a broader application, because I think that it even works as well when it comes to relationships. If you start sharing the things that are in your heart to a member of the opposite sex, You cannot be completely devoted to your spouse and now start having affection for some other person at the same time. You will love one and begin to hate the other, or you will have affection for one and you will begin to despise the other. And it's not, it's just, it's just the way uh, that, that it works. And here's, here's the thing that's important to know. The reason why that person starts looking very, very attractive is because you're not married to them. And that's the thing that's important to know. Because if you were married to them, you'd be talking to someone else about them. And that, that's why, how many of you were here for the series we did called Happily Ever After just a few weeks ago? We left that. All right. Um, now, here's the thing that's, that's important to note. If you notice in that series, everybody laughed at all the same spots. You know why? 
So when I talk about conflict and we talk about sex or we talk about communication, everybody laughs in all the same spots. You know why? Because everybody's dealing with all the same stuff. So it's not like you look on and you say, they pro- they've probably never had a fight. Well, they may fight less, but it doesn't mean they've never had an argument. And, so the, and that's the thing that's important to note. And so it's like, well, if I was married to this person, we'd never fight. Nah, you probably fight just about different things. So, uh, you know, in some cases it's a matter of pick your poison. Um, Probably not the best illustration to use. Uh, didn't say that in the first two services. That's why the third service gets like the concentrate of everything. Um, but that's the thing, and, and, and that's the thing that, that's so important is that you realize. Um, so, but here's the thing that, that, that is important to note: if there's unresolved conflict, the key to not letting that be a pitfall is to talk to the one person who can actually help you solve the problem, and that is to talk to your spouse. That's the only way that it's actually going to work is that if you actually talk to your spouse, talking to someone who you work with doesn't help your marriage. Um, you know, it's like, well, there's this, there's this girl that I talk to, and she really knows a lot. Well, listen, that's not going to help. What's going to help is if you talk to your spouse and say, listen, let's work this out. That's why in, uh, in your notes you'll see in Ephesians chapter 4, I mentioned this verse last week, I'm going to mention it again this week, but he says this, he says, In your anger do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, the reason why that's important, it's a real simple principle, right? Don't go to sleep while you're angry. I'd say, well, that's, that's simple enough. And the reason is, is because I believe in many ways that, um, that sleep can be a powerful motivator to get you to resolve an argument. So it's like, you know, you used to have an argument at 11 p.m., and if at 1.30 a.m. you're still arguing about it, and the guy, you know, you're like, uh-huh, we still arguing? Uh-huh, yeah. All right, you win. It's, I agree with you. I'm going to sleep now. You know, and because if you don't, you say, well, I don't agree. All right, we're staying up then. I don't want to stay up. Okay, then agree with me and this will be over. And, uh, but you know why this is important too? And this is, I think, the wisdom of this principle is that when you go to sleep angry and you wake up angry, you're creating an environment where harboring a grudge is something that's acceptable. And so you start harboring a grudge, and now it's like, well, I, I went to sleep and I woke up and then I was okay with it. But you know what happens next time? You go to sleep and you wake up and you're not okay with it. And you're still mad. And then you walk through the day with it, and now you go to sleep again and you're still mad about it. Then you go to sleep again and you're still mad about it. Now a week has gone by, and that thing that once was anger now is turning into a root that's becoming bitterness in your life. And it's becoming the sticking point that every time now you have conflict with your spouse, that's the thing that comes up. Why? Because you never dealt with it when it was, it was the, the prime opportunity to be dealt with. So here's what Paul says. Don't go to sleep. If you've got to hammer this thing out all night, then you hammer it out all night, and you, then you go to sleep when the thing is resolved. Third one is this. Third pitfall is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Uh, some of you have heard me say this, that I, I think one of the biggest problems that happen in marriage is the wedding itself um, because it creates the unreal expectation. Why? Because you get two people that are getting married that are never going to look as good as they did on their wedding day, right? You get all those pictures, you know what I mean? It's like, um, and I, you, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I've done many, many weddings in, in my years as a pastor, and, uh, and I am just amazed at how God can take... Um, can, God can make a woman who might not be that attractive and make her the most beautiful woman in the world for a day. Um, I mean, and it's, I, people say, how is that possible? I say, it's a miracle. Um, and I, I, mind you, four hours of hair and makeup helps. But 
Um, but I'm telling you, it's amazing. And then, like, after, he's like, what happened? You know, because that's what, you know, you'd agree. I've never seen an ugly bride, ever. I've seen several ugly wives, but I've never seen an ugly bride. And, and it's just like, well, how does that happen? And I'm telling you, girls feel the same way. The guy shows up in a tux and he looks great. Why? Because everybody looks great in the tux. You know, look at penguins. Everybody thinks they're sharply dressed because they're, they're dressed in a tux all the time. And so, uh, and, and so you say, well, and then what, see, he's wearing a tux and he's like, this is the most handsome man in the world. Six months later, she can't even get the guy to wear pants. And it's like, what happened? I thought I married Brad Pitt. Turns out to be armpit that I married. And, uh, and you know, so you don't know what, you don't know what happened. But listen, here's the thing that's important. We all have expectations. All of us had expectations going into marriage. All of us have expectations in our marriages right now. But here's the problem that we have, or the challenge, I should say, with expectations, is that we usually don't communicate them. Instead, what we do is we just expect the other person to know what our expectations are, and then, of course, meet that expectation. And if they don't fulfill the expectation that we have, well, then we just start looking elsewhere. What's the remedy? Communicate with each other. Tell the other person what it is that you want, what it is that you need, and say it, and say it in a way that's loving. Because a marriage that is weak in communication is one that is ripe for an affair. So, you say, all right, those are the pitfalls, but how do I affair-proof my marriage? How do I make my marriage so rock-solid that maybe it's not totally impossible, but it, it is, total, it is the, as remote as could possibly be that my marriage would be rocked by, by, by infidelity. I want to talk to you. I, th- I believe there's three things that we can do. And I, what I want to do is I, I want to have you turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you would. And the thing that I, I want to talk about is one of the greatest men in all of the Bible. A guy that we look at and we would, that many of us would say that we want to be more like. And yet this is a guy who fell into adultery. And I don't know, every time I read 2 Samuel 11, I always think, like, how in the world could this have possibly happened? This is the guy who slew giants. This is the guy who wrote many of the Psalms that we quote. And it's, listen, it's a reminder to us that it can happen to anyone. Because we all know that there's this line. This line is, is the act of adultery. And what happens is, is that we either are marching towards the line or we're marching away from the line but the line is there and what's important for us to note as we watch king david in this story what we're going to watch is this is that he keeps taking steps towards the line and then he's going to go over the line and you know what's going to happen he's going to say i just don't know how it happened and it's the same thing that happens to people that go over the line and commit adultery they just say i just don't know how it happened But what happened was this in David's life, as we're going to see, he started making poor choices that opened him up to this decision taking place and him committing adultery. And what we're going to learn from him are three ways to affair-proof our marriage. Here's verse 1 of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at at the time when kings go into battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here, here's the first thing I want to share with you. Number one uh, way to a fair proof of your marriage, and that is this. Don't drift towards the line. Don't drift towards the line. Most of us are very good at seeing this in other people and very poor at seeing this in ourselves. 
We're very good at seeing this in kids, but very poor in seeing this in the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. And here's what I mean. Um, yesterday uh, was my niece's 11th birthday, and so we were uh, in, uh, we were at, at their house, and uh, we had like a pool party and all that. And so everybody was in the pool, and then we got out of the pool and had like a barbecue. And, um, and then after everybody ate, um, my niece and nephew went back in the pool, and uh, my daughter wanted to go back in the pool, and I said that was fine, but I wanted, to fin- I wanted her to go in with me because I wanted to finish the conversation I was having with my brother-in-law and his dad. And I said, well, and I said, Mia, if you just wait a few minutes, I'll go in with you, but I don't want you to go in by yourself. And she said, okay, but I will wait next to the pool and talk to Sarah and James. And I said, okay. And so anyway, so the, next thing, so the first thing is that she's standing by the pool, and she's talking with them. So a couple minutes, so I'm talking with my brother-in-law and, and uh, a couple people that are there. And then a minute later, I look. My daughter has taken off her sandals. She's sitting, and now she has her toes in the pool. And I'm like, Mia, what are you doing? And she's like, Papi, I'm not in the pool. And I'm like, well, your feet are in the pool. She's like, but I'm not. Apparently, feet are not part uh, connected or something. Well, then I say, well, don't go in the pool without me. Yes, Papi. Well, then, if, you know, it's about five minutes later, and I look over. And now she's on the steps and she's standing in the pool and her and, and the water is coming up almost to her knees. And she's like talking to her cousins. And I'm looking, I'm like, Mia, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm not in the pool. And I'm like, well, yeah, but 25 percent of you already is. And she's like, don't know percentages, Bob, you know, haven't learned that yet. And, and, and I'm thinking, like, it's incredible. So then I finally get in the pool and, and, and we're driving home and I'm thinking, what a picture of all of us. She is that what we tend to do is just that we tend to just kind of push the envelope and and get closer and closer and closer to the line, not realizing that the thing that's going to hurt us um, is is the thing that we're pushing towards. And then we get hurt. We cross the line. And then this is what we think. Man, I have no idea how that happened. You know, one of the questions that that, just as an example, one of the questions that singles ask ask me, um, the singles that, that are dating, they say, well, pastor, how far is too far? I mean, obviously, we know that sex is too far. We know the Bible talks about that. But, but how far is too far, you know, when it comes to dating? And um, now, I usually say this just because I like to amuse myself uh, at the expense of singles. Um, but it is, I think it is a, uh, an important point. And this is what I tend to say, is I tend to say, what if the girl that you're with isn't the girl you're going to marry? And they'll say, okay, you know, it is, it is, we're in love, you know, and I'll say, yeah, okay, but anyway, let's just say that it's not, all right? Just, to, this is like science fiction, okay? Let's just say it's not. And, um, but the girl that you are going to marry is actually dating another guy right now. Okay. So the question is, maybe how far is too far? It's how far do you want the girl that you're going to marry to go with the guy that she's with right now? Maybe that's as far as you should go with the girl that you're with right now. And they're like, say What? And I'm like, yeah, you, what do you think of that? And they're like, oh, we'll, we'll change that. We're, hold, we're not even going to hold hands. We're just going to shake hands. Nice to see you. But maybe not even that. Up top, high five. All right. Catch you later. All right. We're good. You know, don't touch me. All right. We're good. You know, and, and, and so why? Because and so th- this, is just, this is just the whole thing. And so now it's not a matter of how far is too far. It's a matter of are we making wise decisions so that we don't find ourselves drifting towards the line? That's why the thing I, I, I'm, I, I say to singles is, you know, two people who are dating, who are attracted to each other, should not be in a house alone by themselves, in the dark, 
uh, sitting on the couch watching a movie. Well, why is that? Because situations like that that start out innocently enough end up with people not wearing pants by the end of the movie. That's just the way that it is. And then they're like, wow, I don't know how that happened. I know how that happened. I'm not going to draw a diagram, but I'm pretty sure I know how that happened. Right? And so, and, and it's, listen, and it's the same thing that's true for singles is the same thing that's true for couples. And, and, and you say, well, see, um, because some, some people know that there's like these rules that I have, the things that I just, I just don't do. Right? I will not, and I mean, this is like, I don't know, I haven't, I don't know, probably 12, 13 years, 14 years, um, that I just, I will not have lunch or dinner or any other meal um, in a restaurant alone with a woman who is not my wife. It's just, it's just my rule. And, uh, and people look at that and they're like, you know, Bob, there's nothing in the Bible about that. Or one of my rules is that I won't drive in a car alone with a woman who's not my wife. And they're like, you know, Bob, there's no verse about that, right? Because there's no verse that says, you shall not have a chick in your, in your chariot. You know, there's no verse. And so, and, uh, and so because of that, well, what do you do? And I just say, well, I understand and they'll say, but see, I can have lunch with a girl that I work with, and it's okay, because we're good friends. And I'll say, well, that's, that's okay. Um, but, you know, that's incredibly unwise. Well, why is it unwise? Well, the reason it's unwise is that pretty soon you're now sharing details about your life and details about your marriage, and now you've got, you're telling them all the, the, the marital trouble that you're having, and now she starts looking, he starts looking very, very attractive, and the spouse that you have starts looking very, very unattractive. And now, it's not that you've done anything wrong per se, but you're on a road that's causing you to drift towards the line that you don't want to cross. Listen, um, so what do we do? What we do is this. We simply do the things that we know God wants us to do. That is, invest in the marriage that we have. Pursue our spouse. The things that you did to get your spouse, make sure you're doing those things now, that you have your spouse. So you say, well, what did you do? How did you get your spouse? Well, you know, um, I used to send her flowers spontaneously. Well, when was the last time you did that? The last time I did that, Reagan was president. Well, okay, I need to change change your ways there. And... uh, and so, well, so you got, you got, you got to change that. Well, what did you guys do? Oh, I used to, I remember when I just, you know, took it to this really nice restaurant. You know, oh, wow, when was the last, what do you guys do now? Well, I treat her like royalty. We either go to Burger King or Dairy Queen. And it's like, well, right, well you, got to, you got to change that. You know, you got, you got, you got, that's got to be different. You know, you got to communicate and make sure that you're communicating. You got to grow in your relationship with God and do that together. Serve the Lord together. Some, you, some of you guys, you guys know the stats, right? That 52% of marriages uh, end in divorce, right? That's not, that's not a shock. But what some people don't know is the other studies that are done that say this, and this is one of the more recent ones, that when you make your faith an active part of your relationship, and that is that you pray together and read the Bible together and attend church together and serve together, it doesn't become, uh, it, it's not one in a hundred, it's one in 1,052. That's less than one-tenth of one percent. All because you decide to make, make your faith active, and instead of sharing all of this with someone else, you decided to invest in the one that God brought into your life. Peter would write this in Second Peter 1. He says, in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with, gener- with the generous provision of moral excellence. And moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance. 
Patient endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love for everyone. And the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you'll be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. So back to David. David decides in the verse that we read, it says, in the spring when kings go out to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. And the thing is this, is that according to the Bible, when, they, when the children of Israel said they wanted a king, the whole point is they said, we want someone to lead us and someone who will fight our battles. But see, David now, he decides to stay home because he's beginning to drift. And you see, you say, well, there's nothing sinful about staying home. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he deserves a break, right? He can stop by McDonald's because he deserves a break today. And so he can do that. And then he says, well, uh, he can join up with the army anytime. But you know what happens? This is how it starts. And he just begins to drift. And it's this slow drift that now is going to lead him into sin and crossing the line that he doesn't want to cross. And this is what Hebrews 2 says. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. You see... The way it works in our marriages is the same way that it works in our relationship with God. We start out with passion, doing anything and everything, not because we have to, but because we want to. And what starts out with passion turns into function. We do it now, it's just, it's the routine, it's what we have to do. But what starts out with passion and then goes to function soon turns into justification as to why we're not doing any of those things. And then after justification, we begin to do the thing that we said we'd never do and we enter the the place of delusion, where we're now telling ourselves that it's okay and we're just trying to make ourselves believe that. It's the same thing that happens in our relationship with God. It's the same thing that happens in our marriages, which is what leads to adultery. And that's where we see happen with David, is that now things begin to corrupt him and the thing that he thought he would never do is the thing that he begins to do. And listen, it can happen to us if we begin to drift. And look what happens in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now if you pause there and give me your attention... Um, The first one we said is don't drift towards the line. The second one is this, don't dance on the line. And that's the thing that David begins to do. My my daughter, my wife was in Publix the other day, and uh, my son was in the the part where, you know, you put kids in, uh, the the child seat, and so my daughter wanted to ride in the cart as well. So my wife put her in like the, the big part where you put the groceries, and so we just started piling groceries on top of her, and so my daughter thought of this as like her little own little playground, and so all of the groceries now became her toys, and so she's like, hello, Mr. Carrots, how are you? Hello, Mr. Squash, or whatever it was that she had there, and so what she does is she's kind of playing with all this, and then she starts taking the baby food that my wife bought for my son, and she starts stacking them all together, you know, the little glass jars, so she starts stacking all of them, and so as they're, they're uh, riding in the cart, my wife says to my daughter, Mia, she says, Mia, don't stack the the baby food because it's going to 
glass everywhere, baby food everywhere. And you know, I mean, that, I mean, how kids even eat that stuff? Have you ever tried it? It's disgusting. Anyway, sidebar. Uh, but so that's the whole thing. So the stuff is everywhere, right? And then my wife is like, no, Mia, what a mess, this and that. And my daughter turns to, to, to Carrie and she says, it's okay, mommy, I forgive you. And she's like, she's like, no, I forgive you. She's like, yes, mommy, I forgive you. And anyway, she's like, she doesn't really understand that part yet. Um, but the thing is this, this is, this is why I bring it up, is that there's something that seems to happen in our lives as, as Christians. And that is, before we make like a really horrible decision, God always like intervenes and tries to speak words of wisdom into our lives. And that is in the form of maybe something from God's word that comes to us, something that God puts in our mind or in our hearts, or maybe it's even in, in, in the, the someone that we know that comes alongside and here's what we're going to do. And they say, can I just cause you to pause and think about this? What happens with David is this very same issue. When he says, hey, can you, I want to find out about that girl over there. Can you tell me about her? And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's Bathsheba. You know that that's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Do you know that? Now, once again, these names probably don't mean a lot to us, but they should have meant a ton to him. There's three people that's men- that are mentioned here besides um, Bathsheba herself. That, so really before. But the first one that's mentioned is, isn't this the daughter of Eliam? Eliam was one of David's mighty men. Now, David had 400 guys that came to him. And they were, the, the, before he was king, and pledged their lives to him. And they said, we'll fight your battles. We believe that God has called you to be king. And they, over and over, many times over, had risked their lives for the sake of, of David. This is his daughter. It's also the, da- the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David is at home while the army is in battle. Uriah is in the battle right now. While you're checking out his wife, trying to figure out how you're going to sleep with her, here her husband is fighting for you. Just shouldn't do that, right? So, the guy, Eliam, he's, you know, either in the battle or he's like a counselor to the, you know, or some kind of strategist if he's still alive. And so, then Uriah's there. And then there's a guy who's not mentioned. A guy by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is... Um, is a guy that is one of David's chief counselors. And that over the years, this is a guy that David has leaned on for the sake of um, wisdom to make great decisions. And here's the thing that's so interesting. In, uh, in the book of 2 Samuel, there's a part, uh, right around chapter 17, 18, right around there, um, that uh, his, David has a son named Absalom. Absalom rebels against David because he wants to now take the throne himself. And Ahithophel leaves David and joins up with, uh, with Absalom. And he's heartbroken over this thing. And the question that people ask is why? Why would this guy who's been so loyal to David now rebel against David? Now, I want to read you this simple verse. It's a, it's a genealogy in 2 Samuel 23. It says this. It says, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. You say, well, what's that mean? Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam, who is the son of Ahithophel, which means that Bathsheba is the granddaughter of David's chief counselor, the guy that he's looked to for wisdom in the past. And so they stop him and they say, don't you know who this woman is? This woman is the wife of one of the guys who's in, your, in the battle that you're supposed to be in. He's the 
She's the, son, she's the daughter of one of your 400 mighty men, and she's the granddaughter of one of your chief counselors, one of your trusted friends. David, don't do this. And we would look on at this unemotionally and say, it's a no-brainer, don't do this. But David is now, he's gone from passion to function. He's in the justifying stage and stepping into the delusion phase. And what's going to happen is, is that he's gone from drifting to dancing on the line, and that only leads to one place. Look at verse 4. This is where we're going to cap it in uh, verse 4. It says, And then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. See, David was drifting towards the line, so it's don't drift towards the line, don't dance on the line, and number three, don't get dragged over the line. Don't, drag, don't get dragged over the line. You see, the thing that happens is, is that if you dance on the line if you, uh, enough, you will eventually get dragged over the line. And it's just, the, it's just the, the way that it works. And here's the thing is that I've sat with people over the years, and here's what they're willing to, those who have crossed the line, and they'll say this, Pastor, I will do anything to get on the other side where I can erase this mistake that's been made. And, and what happens is this, is that, and the, tr- the truth is, is that, and this is the heartbreaking part, is that there's nothing you can do. I mean, besides go back in time. But, you, just, you know, you, 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 you can't do it, and so what are you going to do? And, but they're willing to say, I will go to any extreme, I will change anything, I will do anything to change this. And here's the, here's the wisdom for us. If someone who's gone over the line says, I will go to any extreme to, to, to stop, to, to erase this from happening, maybe we need to go to extremes to keep it from happening. You see, I've told you some of my practices that people think are a bit odd. One of the things that I do, and this has been years, but I don't sit, uh, I don't counsel women alone. It's just not something that I do. Um, and so I'll have, you know, ladies will come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, my husband and I are going through something. I'd really like to meet with you. And I'll say, I'm sorry, but uh, I don't meet with women alone. If you, want, if you want to meet with me with your husband, happy to do that. If you want to just have your husband meet with me, I'd be happy to do it. Well, he doesn't want to go to counseling. So I understand that. But there's, there's some ladies that are very, very trained, uh, that, that, that are very good, very skilled counselors that can, that can meet with you. And here's the thing that's important to note. I believe that's the biblical model. And here's why I say that. I put the verse there, but it says this in Titus chapter 2 in your notes. It says the older women must train the younger women. And once again, I don't think that refers so much to age as it does to maturity in, in, in the Scriptures and maturity in Christ. And so in the same way, we need to set up boundaries that may seem odd to other people. But we say we're committed that we're going to stay faithful to the one that God brought to us. And so... Um, if it sounds extreme, it sounds extreme. But once again, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is that we stay faithful so that we never drift, dance, or get dragged over the line. Um, I, I, I've had a front row seat to the destructive power of adultery. The first pastor that I worked for years and years ago, uh, when I was working for him, he, uh, he, uh, it came out that he had been having an affair for quite some time. And um, it, it rocked his family. It destroyed his ministry. And, uh, and I was there in the front row to watch the whole thing. And um, I've, I've had guys that I consider friends that comes out that they've been, you know, for a season of time cheating on their wife. And it just destroys their ministry. 
and it destroys their family and marriages come to an end and all of this. And, um, and the thing that's important for us to note is this. The command about being faithful to your spouse doesn't just affect you. It affects you and everyone around you. Because when you cross the line, it creates a whirlwind in other people's lives that you just don't realize the destructive power that it has. And this is the thing, is that it affects everybody. It affects you, it affects your spouse, it affects your kids, it affects your family, it affects the, every, the, the family of the person that, that, um, that, that, that you cheated with, and it's a whole thing. And, and here's the thing, is that God's desire is for families to stay together. The only way that we raise kids that, that, that are, that are well-adjusted and that, um, that, that really get a right representation of who God is is when there's a family that's together. Um, my daughter, as I've mentioned a couple times in the message, my daughter's almost three and a half, and she understands the way it's supposed to be. I'm amazed by her, and we've never talked to her about this. But she understands like, what a family is supposed to look like. She has these, um, she has these two little alligators that she plays with in, in, her, in the bathtub, and uh, one's a little bigger, one's a little smaller. And so she calls one mommy alligator, and she calls the little one baby alligator. And so she plays with them. And, and the other day, um, I was giving her a bath, and she says, Poppy, why is there no daddy alligator? And I said, Mia, I don't know. Um, I don't think they sold it in the package. And uh, that didn't really mean a lot to her. Uh, but I said, I, I, Mama, I don't know. And she said, um, but she said, aren't they a family? And I said, well, well, yeah. And then what happened is a couple nights later, I'm giving her a bath, and she takes one of her other toys. And she says, Poppy, this one is the daddy. And now they can be a family. And I was amazed that she's three and a half years old and she understands God's design for family. And, um, and here's the thing. I grew up in a single parent home. I understand how that works. Uh, both of my parents are divorced multiple times over. And so um, I think I've told you this. Um, every, every aunt, uncle, Parent, uh, a grandparent in my family has been divorced. Um, so I understand uh, divorce uh, pretty well. Um, and, what I'm, and what I'm sharing with you is this. If you're married, do everything that you can do to stay that way. Because the way that you and I as Christians reflect who God is if you're married, is by being together. And when you have a good marriage, you reflect who God is to a world that doesn't know Him. And not only that, but you reflect who God is to the kids that God has given you. Because what they're trying to do is learn what a real relationship is. Because when there's a parent who's not there, you know what? They start thinking, dads, I'm talking to you in particular. Here's what they start thinking. If dad is there, that is their representation of who God is. And if he's not there, guess what they think about God? Like, he's not there either. But instead, when mom's there and dad's there, and they're working it out, not because marriage is easy, but because we know that marriage takes work if we want it to work. But instead, when we make it work, here's what happens. Our kids look and they see, they have a representation of what a real relationship it looks like. And then they have a representation of who God looks like and the attributes and characteristics of a God in heaven who loves them so much that he wanted to send them a mommy and a daddy who would be there. And listen, um, 
I, I understand. And I'm looking and I'm scanning and I, I'm seeing uh, tears in the crowd. And I, I just want you to know it, it moves me. It moves me deeply. Um, but I share all of this with you. Because there's some decisions that we can't undo because they're done. And there's some decisions that haven't been made yet. Right? These are the ones. These are the ones that we can make a change. These are the ones that we can prevent from happening. That's why God gives, puts this commandment in, in, in the ten words. Because he says we've got to fight for family. We've got to fight to keep families together. Because if we can, we'll represent who he is to a world that doesn't know him. And we'll represent who he is to the children that he gives us and blesses us with. Let's pray together. And Father, we, um, we thank you so much for your, for your love. Um, we thank you so much for these ten words. And God, sometimes they're hard to hear. And sometimes they, they move us. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you that they move us sometimes even to tears that we're still sensitive to your spirit speaking to us and challenging us. God, I pray for every person here, every family here, every couple here. God, help us to fight for our families that we might see blessing in our lives and blessing in those that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen.